Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 53. Today we'll be reading Book 12, chapters 28 through 32 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. All right, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. As previewed in the last episode, we're going to hear more about how sacred scripture admits of various or many interpretations. The point is not that, again, St. Augustine is a relativist, which he is not, but he's cognizant of the fact that, one, God is infinitely rich and can pour a content in meaning which, you know, abounds in the sacred scripture. And then on the other hand, he can work such that the inspired author might have an insight into those various meanings and, you know, work them into the sacred page, and that we, when interpreting those different meanings, are are limited in our comprehension. And so we're going to have to be humble before the sacred page with the, you know, cognizance that, yeah, it could be this, it could be that. Let's uh, work within the bounds of the church and her clarifications. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 28. But others who find in these words no longer merely a nest, but deep and shady arbors, see that they are laden with concealed fruit and fly joyously about, cheerfully singing as they seek after them and pluck them free. For upon reading or hearing these words, they see that all times past and future are surpassed by your eternal and stable permanence, and yet that no creature formed in time can fail to be fashioned by you. And they see that because your will is the same as you yourself, therefore you fashioned all things without any change in will and without any sort of new act of willing. And also, they see that these things were not fashioned out of yourself in your own likeness, which is the form of all things, but rather were fashioned out of nothing, a formless unlikeness, which must be formed to your likeness, returning to your unity, each according to its appointed capacity, so far as each thing in its particular kind is given to do. And they see that thus all may be made very good, whether they abide around you or are by degrees removed from you in time and place, themselves producing or undergoing the beautiful variations of the universe. They see all these things and rejoice to the small degree it is possible here below in the light of your truth. Another man reflects on what is said in those words, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth, and beholds therein wisdom, the beginning, because it also speaks to us. Another man similarly reflects upon the same words and understands beginning to mean the commencement of created things. In the beginning he made, as if one said, he had first made. And those who understand in the beginning to mean in your wisdom you created heaven and earth, understand even this in various ways. One such man believes that the matter out of which heaven and earth were to be created is there called heaven and earth. 
Another believes that heaven and earth are natures already formed and distinguished. Another holds that one is a formed nature that is spiritual, referred to by the name heaven, and the other is a formless bodily matter, referred to as earth. And those who understand heaven and earth to refer to matter that is as yet formless, from which heaven and earth were to be formed, also understand even this in various ways. One holds that it is that from which both intelligible and sensible creatures were to be perfected. Another holds that it is only that from which the sensible bodily mass was to be made, containing in its vast bosom all these natures that we see now before our eyes. And even they who believe that the creatures already ordered and arranged are in this place called heaven and earth do not understand the words the same way. Rather, one holds that both the invisible and the visible are referred to, and another holds that it is only the visible creation, in which we behold the light-filled heavens and the dark earth with all the things that they contain. 29. But he who only understands in the beginning he made, to mean at first he made, has no true understanding of heaven and earth, unless he understands them to refer to the matter of heaven and earth, that is, the whole of creation, both intelligible and bodily. For if he understood it to refer to the universe as something already formed, he might rightly be asked, if God made this first, what did he make thereafter? And after the universe, he will find nothing. Thus, against his will, he will hear another question. How did God make this first if there was nothing thereafter? But when he says, God made matter first formless, then formed, there is no absurdity involved in this claim, so long as he can discern what comes first by eternity, what by time, what by choice, and what by origin. By eternity, as God is before all things, by time, as the flower is before the fruit, by choice, as the fruit is before the flower, by origin, as the sound is before the tune. Of these four, the first and last are extremely difficult to understand, though the middle two are easy to grasp. For it is a rare and all too lofty vision to behold your eternity, O Lord, unchangeably making changeable things, and in that way before them. And who, again, has so sharp-sighted an understanding as to be able to discern without great difficulty how it is that the sound is thus before the tune? For a tune is a formed sound, and although an unformed thing may exist, that which does not exist cannot be formed. Thus is matter before the thing made, not because it makes it, for it is itself something made, nor by an interval of time, for we do not first in time utter formless sounds without singing, and then subsequently adapt or fashion them into the form of a chant, as we do with the wood or silver from which a chest or vessel is fashioned. For those materials do also come first in time before the forms of the things made from them, but this is not so in singing. For when the song is sung, its sound is heard, for there is not first a formless sound that is thereafter formed into a chant. For each sound, as soon as it is made, passes away, and there is nothing you can find of it to recall and to compose by art. Therefore, the chant is concentrated in its sound, and this sound is its matter. And this indeed is formed so that it may be a tune, and thus, as I said, the matter of the sound is before the form of the tune, not before through any power it has for making a tune a tune, for a sound is in no way this fashioner of the tune, but rather is something bodily that is subject to the soul that sings, and from that sound a tune is made. Nor is it first in time, for it goes forth together with a tune. Nor is it first in choice, because a sound is not better than a tune, for a tune is not only a sound, but moreover a beautiful sound. But it is first in origin, because a tune does not receive a form in order to become a sound, but a sound receives a form so as to become a tune. By means of this example, let him that is able to understand how the matter of things was first made and was called heaven and earth, because heaven and earth were made out of it. However, it was not made first in time, for the forms of things give rise to time. It was without form, but now it is, in time, an object of sense together with its form. And yet nothing can be said about that matter except by speaking as though it were prior in time.
but in value it is last because things formed are superior to things without form and is preceded by the eternity of the Creator so that anything that was made would be made from nothing. 30. Let truth himself produce harmony among such a diversity of true opinions, and may our God have mercy on us that we may use the law lawfully for the end of the commandment, pure charity. By this, if a man insistently asks me which of these was what your servant Moses meant, these words would not be my confessions if I did not confess unto you, I do not know. And yet, I do know that these various senses are true except for those carnal ones concerning which I have passed the judgment that seemed necessary. And even those hopeful little ones who think along those lines have this benefit, that the words of your book do not frighten them away, delivering to them lofty realities in a lowly manner and presenting abundant meaning in few words. And all of us who, I confess, see and express the truth delivered in those words, let us love one another and together love you, our God, the fountain of truth, if we are thirsty for it and not for vanities. Yes, let us so honor him, your servant, who has spread the scripture full of your spirit as to believe that when through your revelation he wrote these things, he intended that meaning which among them chiefly excels both in luminous truth and fruitful profit. 31. And so, when one says, Moses meant what I say, and another says, no, he means what I say, I suppose that I speak more reverently. Why not rather both, if both be true? And if there is a third or a fourth, indeed, if any other man sees any other truth in those words, why may we not believe that Moses saw all these, he through whom the one God has adapted the holy scriptures to the senses of many, who should see in them things at once true but various? For certainly, as I say it fearlessly from my heart, if I were to write anything that was going to have supreme authority, I would prefer to write in such a way that whatever truth any man could grasp concerning those matters might be conveyed in my words, rather than to set down my own meaning so clearly that all the others would be excluded, though they could not offend me since they are not false. Therefore, O oh my God, I will not be so rash as not to believe that you granted as much to that great man. Without doubt, when he wrote those words, he sensed and conceived whatever truth we have been able to find in them, and indeed also whatever truth we have not been able to find, or have not yet been able to find, but which nonetheless can be found in them. 32. And finally, O Lord, who are God and not flesh and blood, even if man did see less, could anything be concealed from your good spirit who shall lead me into the land of uprightness, anything that you yourself by those words were going to reveal to readers in times to come, though he through whom they were spoken perhaps only thought of one among the many true meanings thereof? If this be so, let him have thought upon the loftiest of such meanings. But to us, O Lord, reveal either that same meaning or any other true one that pleases you, so that whether you reveal to us the same meaning as what you did to your servant or some other meaning on the occasion of hearing those words, you nonetheless will feed us and not deceive us by error. Behold, O Lord my God, how much we have written concerning a few words, how much, I beseech you, what strength of ours, indeed, what ages would be enough for all your books to be considered in this way. Permit me then in these words more briefly to confess unto you and to choose some one true, certain, and good meaning that you shall inspire me to choose, though many might occur where many can occur. And in this faith of my confession, if I should say that which your minister intended, that will be right and best. I should always strive for this, and if I do not attain it, nonetheless, I would say that which your truth willed to tell me through his words, which also said unto him what it willed. Okay, 
So here we're hearing from St. Augustine, or we heard from St. Augustine on the different interpretive possibilities, uh, whether they are intended by the sacred author or not. And this is something that comes up in a variety of places in the church's tradition. So I remember reading St. Thomas Aquinas' commentary on the book of the prophet Isaiah, and specifically on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, uh, which is the famous Emmanuel prophecy. And in that context, St. Thomas says, yeah, there might be uh, several literal meanings of the sacred page. So like, I don't know, the prophet might be talking here about one of the king's sons, or he might be talking about someone else in his time and place, but he's certainly talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And you hear that and you're like, wowza, cool, because that's to suggest that he might have multiple things in mind. Now, for us who find it difficult to multitask, one of my sisters says that she finds it difficult to both talk and chew gum at the same time. So for us who find it difficult to multitask, that might be a, a bit mind-boggling. But still, we have to admit the possibility that somebody could be doing two or three or four things with the same words. And this is Part of what's cool about the ambiguity of good literature or good poetry, and certainly the Bible qualifies as more than simply good literature or good poetry. It's divinely authored, divinely inspired good poetry and good literature. So, uh, Father Jacob Bertrand, as we meditate on the fact that not only can the sacred page have one sense, it might have multiple senses, both as told by the words and the events that are contained therein, where does that uh, kind of lead you in your own musings? To a place of more confusion, I think. Um, <laughs> not confusion uh, with with respect to what has been, you know, written or what is being given to us in the sacred scriptures. And I don't mean confusion in the sense of like I don't understand, so this can't be right. But uh, trying to wrap my mind around how it is that God decides to reveal Himself to us. Um, you know, thinking of the Emmanuel prophecy as as you mentioned makes me wonder whether or not you know, the authors of scripture, how much were they cognizant of and writing? You know, they knew what they were doing. They didn't become sort of like drones or like aliens from like men in black kind of thing where they're just bodies being taken over. But there's certainly instruments of revelation. You know, God uses them to reveal himself. So yeah, it's it's a lot is I think what I mean by confusion of 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 that sort of thing. But in that, it's good to remember that that we don't have to have all of those pieces worked out and probably won't have all of those pieces worked out um, in order to receive what is being given and sent to the author. So yeah, I don't think Augustine is trying to point out, he's not trying to like do one upsmanship here where it's like, there's so much that we might not know, so we can't know anything, but I know a little bit more than you kind of thing. But he's just investigating, you know, he's looking at, at what it is, so. Yeah, I think just at the level again of practical application, this is comforting or consoling for me to hear because there might be many meanings to my own life, your own life, the lives of our listeners in the sense that, okay, so stuff happens and then you try to make sense of it. And sometimes you come up with an explanation and then later on you come to find that that explanation was imperfect or only partial. And then you have to rejigger the explanation so that it better accommodates what's transpired in the days since. Okay, cool. I would say simply this, that there are two basic dimensions to human existence. One is the living of it, and then the other is the interpreting of it. And the interpreting of it is actually, in fact, part of the living of it because we're meant to think about our lives, to reflect on our lives, to draw forth some intelligible content from our lives, to say to the Lord, oh, are you doing this or are you doing that? But I think that we're, we're often going to come to find that our limited understanding, it's not that like it poses an obstacle to our living of life, but it's also going to continually break us open to the fact that 
Yeah, we can't exhaust it. We can't um, adequately summarize it or encapsulate it. Oftentimes we're in the position of just kind of enduring it or suffering it or getting through it. And that might take on a more glorious aspect, you know, here and there, um, sporadically or punctually. But by and large, it's going to be a bit of a mess. And that's okay. Because St. Augustine is saying, we have precedent in the sacred page, in God's chosen modes of revelation and grace. And that's, yeah, it's also going to have an effect in our own humanity, or it's going to apply in the case of our own humanity. So I think scripture here is a kind of cipher for human existence more generally. So I don't know if that corresponds or that resonates with your experience. Yeah, there's, I guess when I read scripture, as I read scripture, there's, and, and I'm sure that a lot of you have experienced this too, when we read over the same verses again, or pick up, you know, a psalm that has spoken to us in the past, or, you know, it no longer does, or it does in a new way, there's, it quickly comes to bear, or what quickly comes to bear, that the sort of the life of the living word becomes pretty obvious to us pretty quickly. And even in our own experience of the scriptures, and I'm sure this was the case for St. Augustine too, there's, you know, it, it works on us differently at different times too. You know, we, there's just like a multiplicity to the reality of scripture from the way it was written by its authors to the way it's interpreted to the way it moves in our own lives. It's not just something you know, that we encounter once and it's kind of a one and done thing, but it's, it's on all sort of levels that this life of the scriptures exists. And I think Augustine is, he's trying to figure that out a bit, but also inviting us to live in that too. Yeah, for sure. And so when he kind of moves through this passage, recall that we're focusing here, especially on Genesis 1, 1 in book 11, and then Genesis 1, 2 in book 12, but often looking back to Genesis 1, 1, he's trying to establish like the priority, the time-bound priority of the events that take place in these first few verses. Um, and he's saying, okay, so there are different senses of priority. You could be prior by eternity, prior by time, prior by choice, prior by origin. You heard all of this. And they'll give examples as to how that's such or the ways in which that applies here in the interpretation. He gets a little bit into the weeds with these um, with these different interpretations because he's trying to suss out, again, what the sacred page might mean, in what sense we say beginning, or in what sense God is prior to creation, or in what sense one kind of creative act is prior to another creative act. And he acknowledges the difficulties, and he's, he's willing to do the work. And then at the end of this book, he'll say, you could literally do this for all of sacred scripture. You could do this for all of sacred scripture. And it's not just because you just have to set a bunch of nerds onto the sacred text so that they we, you know, like they can expend their energies in some fruitful enterprise rather than mastering like, I don't know, a video game or something like that. But he's just saying, this is what I mean by the profundity of the text. This is what I mean when I say, oh, the depth of it, because we're talking about a content-rich experience with the Most High God who has accommodated himself so that we can read him off the page, which is mind-boggling and awesome. So yeah, again, he's, he's really trying to show us that there's a kind of pluripotency of sacred scripture, to use some cool word that I learned when studying stem cell research for five seconds. Uh, Father Jacob Bertrand studied it for like five years, so I am somewhere between him and a rock. So we have now established a spectrum of intelligence. We've got Augustine on the one end, rocks on the other, and us in between. Okay, so um, here, again, he'll make reference to the fact that the church can clarify stuff, and he's thinking about his time with the Manichaeans, and he says, we can rule out carnal interpretations because that's no that's no help to anybody because it leads to death because the truth leads to life and falsity is ultimately it's just going to work our own undoing so that's why the church says no this is heresy or no this is this is blasphemy or no this is schismatic or no this is 
you know, this represents a kind of apostasy. The church rules out things which will lead to death and rules in things which lead to life. So there's a kind of healthy sense then of inclusivity when he's saying, yeah, these various interpretations might apply because it seems like they all lead ultimately unto life within the setting of the church, within the setting of the assembly. So Father Jacob Bertrand, when we talk about inclusion in the 21st century, always, always a triggering topic, always exciting times. But how do you think that this Augustinian principle, you know, can, can work in our own lives? Yeah, even thinking historically about what is, as you were saying, what the church has declared to be orthodox or heterodox or good or bad, the, the principle of life is the defining principle. You know, it, it does it lead people to sin, destruction, death, or does it lead to life and, and resurrection, recreation? And that's, I think, you know, in a historical kind of macro context can be seen, but also in a I don't know, what would I say, micro context of our own lives of, yeah, just the, even the, the sort of turning to the moral question, like what is it that we do say, chase after that is conducive to our living in the light of Christ? And what is it that is not conducive to that? And, you know, this is the whole point of the confession. St. Augustine has walked through this in the first books of, of his confessions. We've walked through it with him. But you see it, too, at work as not just a principle of our own life, but a principle of, of life in general, of how it is that our Lord works, how it is that he draws, how it is that he, I was going to say, destines us, but in his providence calls us, that sort of thing, of this sort of like... Yeah, we, we can't pretend to live in, I was going to say, of this inclusivity, which implies a sort of exclusivity. And as Christians, we ought to be very comfortable with excluding things and excluding actions and ways of living and that sort of thing, because in the end, they, they lead to our destruction, to a modicum of happiness, but ultimately not for, perhaps, and but ultimately not that for which or for whom we're made. And yeah, we see, we've seen this all along, and we don't want to divorce these chapters or these books from what Augustine's written earlier, but we see this all along. Of if It's a quest, a journey to live with Christ, and he, he did so first by examining his life, but now looking at the scriptures and, and what it is that leads to life. So there's this sort of through theme that we're just coasting on, I guess, you know? Yeah, and I think that that last point that you made, that this has been present throughout the confessions is a good one. And I think that, okay, so we've said that there's a pluripotency to the sacred scripture, but let's root that or source that in the pluripotency of the divine omnipotence. So God is just abounding life. And so when God, you know, kind of pours himself out into creation, we're going to get snatches of a vision or we're going to get like hints of a vision, but we're never going to get the whole vision as it were. We're not going to be able to take it in all at once. You could say a similar thing just for the incarnation in general. So our Lord Jesus Christ he bears out the divine life, and he tells the story of salvation in his own flesh. Not that he needs to be saved, but in telling the story of the divine life in his own flesh, he saves us. Okay, so St. Augustine is also saying that, that my life is one way in which that story has been recounted in an individual Christian, right? That I might fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, but it also might be recounted in different ways in your life. In my life, it's been kind of wild and sensational. In your life, it might be more tame and, I don't know, ordinary or normal, regardless. But it, like God is is telling the story of salvation in each of our individual lives in different registers and different modes because the depth of it, you know, it's inexhaustible. That is to say the divine life itself as we fallen individuals, you know, kind of downstream of Adam and Eve and their rebellion come to appreciate it through the faith and the sacraments and all that goes into our healing and growth in the here and now and in time and in space and in the present circumstances. So 
these reflections on sacred scripture are also, you know, like to be taken more broadly as reflections about about our Christian existence writ large. So, yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, final thoughts. I think all of that, just for the sake of not repeating myself too much, it just all falls within the category of St. Augustine's own, you know, confession of who he is, of his life, of his desire for Christ, his pursuit for Christ, sometimes better, sometimes worse, and now coming to know Christ through the scriptures and to, to chase after him here. So it's all of a piece, and it's kind of beautiful to see those pieces in place, I guess. Amen. Alleluia. All right, folks. We are in the home stretch, or at the very least, we're rounding the clubhouse turn, or some other adequate racing image taken either from horses or humans. You just choose the one that suits your fancy. Okay, no of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>